What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision-making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to Sensorina.com to check it all out. On the Hockey IQ podcast today, we bring on Joel Jackson. Joel is like on the level of Anthony Donskov, maybe clipping him ever so slightly in the strength and conditioning world for hockey. So got to say, really surprised when he finally said yes to coming on the podcast. So uh, Joel, thanks for coming on. Oh yeah, no problem. It's it's great to be here, Greg. And yeah, Anthony's still light years ahead of me. So don't put me in that league quite yet. <laughs> I mean, one guy works with an NHL team. The other just hangs out in Columbus with, you know, Coach Rivek over here. So one's a cool guy. <laughs> yeah, he's got his PhD though. And he's written two books. So I, I don't have that on my resume yet. <laughs> well, does he have a weight room named after him? Because I believe you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I... I do have uh, the the weight room in my very tiny hometown in northern Manitoba is named after me, so it's definitely one of my my bigger claims to fame. Well, uh, usually I feel like it's presidents, uh, you know, former NHL stars. You know, those are the guys that get their their names uh, in on buildings or in rooms. So curious to hear the story of what kind of impact you had because clearly it had to be something great. Yeah, it was, it's, it's kind of, it's funny. It's kind of where it all started for me in, in the kind of the strength training, resistance training world for sure. So just growing up in a, in a really small town called Snow Lake, Manitoba, um, you know, any of your listeners uh, that are familiar with Canada or the province of Manitoba, my hometown is a seven and a half hour drive north of Winnipeg. So it is way up there. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, just a really small mining community grew up playing hockey and everything like that. And as I got into the junior high, high school years, me and a few of my friends were you know, obviously looking for uh, a place to train because we didn't have a fitness center or a gym per se in the town. So we, uh, we got access to a classroom in the school that wasn't being used and basically kind of looked around town for people to donate equipment. Uh, there was some equipment that the school had. Uh, my dad, who was the maintenance supervisor at the school, built the squat rack out of two by sixes and, you know, I bolted it and attached it to the wall. So uh, you can imagine what this place looked like, right? It was, uh, <laughs> you had to be pretty creative with some of the stuff you were doing, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was really, it was really cool. It was where it all started for me, kind of, uh, you know, shaped me as a young man and and gave me appreciation for work ethic and, and uh, the, the kind of influence that weight training can, can give you as an athlete. So, um, and after, after I'd left, um, you know, to play junior in college and everything like that, and one of the teachers that was there um, during my time 
ended up getting some funding to kind of refurbish the weight room and paint it and get a bunch of nice new equipment in there and everything like that. And he decided to name it after me. So, um, so yeah, the Joel Jackson community weight room, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of cool. I, I, I have a, a, an older picture of me in front of it. I haven't been back in, in a while. I need to get back in there to a more up-to-date picture, but yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a, a cool story about me. That's awesome. I feel like you need to go back, uh, just set some like weight room records and then leave just, yeah, just yeah, to well, cement your place. Like you can never take this weight room away from me. Like, <laughs> my name needs to be plashed on this forever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's still, a, there's a couple of strong kids that I know recently were working out in there. So I might not be able to take any records, but uh, my name on the walls is enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, well, getting into the specifics here of, of doing your job, obviously, I try to pack as much value into these podcasts as humanly possible. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the bench press. You know, I, I have all my S&C people on and I have to ask, it, should it be a staple in the diet of a growing young hockey player? Um, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of tough to say, right? Because like it's like a lot of times it's going to depend on the individual, but the the exercise itself uh, is good, right? It's a uh, you know a multi joint upper body exercise that allows you to put a significant amount of load, and it can allow you to get really good strength gains. So, you know, if you if you have an athlete that doesn't have any restrictions with their shoulder, no previous injuries around that upper body shoulder area, especially it's probably going to be a perfectly fine exercise and you know where you run into issues with it is is with some of those athletes that have had you know ac separations different types of shoulder problems where if there's pain in the movement then 100% you need to find something else to do to target their upper body um, you know, another big problem that, you know, and this is probably me guilty back in the day in, in Snow Lake when I was first starting to work out where that's, you know, you're just doing way too much pushing over pulling, right? And you're kind of running an unbalanced program. And that's where you can run into the postural problems of the, of the athletes doing the rounded shoulders because they, they know that the anterior part of their upper body is way more developed than the posterior part. So that's, that's one of the biggest things that needs to be kept in mind is that you have to have a balance between your, your pushing and pulling uh, when you're in the weight room. And oftentimes with, um, with athletes nowadays and everybody we're spending a lot of time sitting and, and kind of hunched over in a, in a poor posture, like more pulling than pushing is usually beneficial for the average guy or average female, whoever it is that you're training. But yeah, the bench press itself, it's like a lot of athletes love it. And if they like it and, and there's no pain in it, go for it. Right. It's, I, I, I love it. It's a good exercise. I like doing it myself still. Right. And my, my shoulders are a little cranky, so I kind of have to have to change it up a little bit. Incline bench press is a little bit better than flat, but, uh, but yeah, I, again, it's just, it really depends on the situation. Uh, perfect. I was going to say, now you can tell us about all of the guys and how they rank in the gym for the Oilers, right? <laughs> no, not a chance, but, um, you, you bring up a great point and something I really want to dive into. And it's the idea of having good quality posture and the fact that developing these pulling really helps develop your back muscles, spine, all that. Um, Again, you've got all the complex terms, and the actual definition. So correct me at any time. Um, and really helping out with the idea of the posture being a key element um, just with daily living, but also when it comes to performance, doing technique, 
how important posture is and how often I see it overlooked when we talk about doing skill work, skills, coaches, whatever it may be, uh, especially with skating, like how important the posture is. So uh, you're telling me and the listeners that we need to do more pulling per day. So a rowing machine would be good, things like that. Yeah. And like, just, you know, thinking in your, you know, like hopefully most people do have resistance training in their kind of exercise routine because, you know, just our everyday average drill Joe's as you age, it's like, if, if you want to actually change your body composition, if you're just out there running or cycling or just doing cardio, that's, that's not going to change it. Right. It's resistance training. That's going to, going to actually change how you look. Right. So um, the biggest thing is, yeah, just making sure that you have a, a good, um, you know, a good amount of pulling in your program, whether that be horizontal pulling, um, you know, things like that could be seated rows, you know, like on a cable machine works fine, dumbbell, three-point rows, anything like that. Um, and then you're, you're pushing, you know, you're, you're doing it, sorry, I should go back to vertical pulling as well. So that would be like our chin-ups and our, our pull-ups and our lat pull-downs. And just making sure you have a balance with that, right? And you know, another thing too is is just to be to be conscious of of your posture with everything that you're doing, right? So like me, I'm I should kind of sit up here right now and you know pull the shoulder blades back, push the chest out a little bit, you know, instead of hunching over. And um, you know, Chad Drummond is the uh, the head strength and conditioning guy that I that I work with here, and it just so happened that one day, you know, he sent me on one of the road trips, and uh, we came back or came back as a team and he had got standing desks for for him and myself so and they're adjustable so you can bring them down and sit or you can bring them up to stand and like stuff like that is great right if you can spend a little bit more time standing or just spending more time throughout the entirety of your day in a in a good posture is probably going to be one of the key factors for you right you know the you know no matter who you are athlete or not it's like back pain is something that you want to avoid at all costs and um you know i'm speaking from a place where i don't have a lot of experience with back pain luckily right but uh it is something when you talk to people that have it it's it's crippling right and um you know focusing on your posture and and having a good well-balanced resistance training routine as as part of your kind of daily life is something that will help you avoid that so very important Resistance training. So, all right, I'm going to go nail my running shoes to the floor. Just I'm not saying running's me. bad. I still, I still do a lot of it, right? But just, you know, that balance, right? Everything's got to be balanced. <laughs> well, I just want to, you know, just fight against that resistance of the nails, you know, on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're, you're a well-researched person here. So I, I know you did your thesis on, on uh, the time motion analysis Analysis, analysts. Analysis, yeah. You just say motion, TMA for short. Yeah, okay. That's uh, heart rate response to university hockey games. Uh, I'm an idiot. Please help me out. What, what does that mean? What did you find? Yeah, so when I when I did my, um, my master's degree at the University of Alberta, um, yeah, we, I decided to do it on, on time motion analysis uh, and heart rate response in the sport of hockey. And, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest influences on that was my, my supervisor that I had at the time, his name was Dr. Gordon Bell. And, um, you know, he had done time motion research in, in a few other sports, including rugby. Um, and I'm, I'm forgetting a couple of the other ones off the top of my head, but either way, when we look back at the research at that time, 
the last kind of true time motion analysis study that was done in the sport of hockey was in the 70s um, by uh, uh, Dr. Howie Green out of Ontario. Uh, I can't remember what school he was at, but either way, it was something that, you know, definitely needed to be updated. And, um, you know, what we what we ended up doing there is we formed 10 different movement categories. And, you know, if this was, you know, uh, over 10 years ago now, so the, the technology that we were using, it probably would be, you know, there's a much better way to do it now. And, and since then, somebody has published more research using catapult units. That's a little bit more accurate. But what we did was more manual notation. So I used a software program called Dartfish. And uh, we basically, you know, watched the games in Dartfish and coded movement patterns for each player. So we had forward gliding, forward moderate skating, forward sprinting and forward starting. So starting just being from a stationary stance into an explosive sprint. Uh, and then those same four categories for backward skating. And then the final two were standing or stationary activity, and then struggling for a puck, which would be just engaging with an opponent um, in the corners in front of the net, anything like that. Um, so what I had to do for my thesis is basically watch three hockey games, over and over and over again for every single position on the ice. So I uh, I know those those three games from from the female pandas hockey there like the back of my hand. But um, basically, what we ended up finding was that the majority of the time is spent in the forward gliding and the forward moderate skating movement categories, right, where everything else is quite low. So um, basically, thirty six percent of the time spent forward gliding, thirty one percent forward moderate skating, ten percent backward gliding. 7% standing, 6% struggling, 5% forward maximum skating. So only 5% of the game spent sprinting. And then 3% backwards moderate skating. And then things like backwards sprinting and stuff like that, it was negligible how, how much time was actually spent in those movement categories. Um, and then some of the other things that came up were obviously like defense spent more time backwards skating than forwards, which you can kind of expect. And forwards spent a little bit more time sprinting forwards than, than defense. And that just comes with the territory of those positions, obviously. Um, and then when we looked at the heart rate response, that was another thing that was, um, you know, not necessarily surprising, but very big heart rate responses during shifts. So for a peak, an average peak heart rate response for the players was 96% of their max heart rate during a shift. So, you know, they're up in like the, the 180s, 190s, depending on what these players' uh, maximum heart rates were. And then the average heart rate for a shift in its, in its entirety was 92% of the max. So very, very high heart rates, just as a testament to the cardiovascular demand of the sport that sometimes gets underplayed out there. Um, and then another thing that we looked at was like a work to rest ratio. And then we looked at two different versions of that. So an on ice work to rest ratio where how much time is the player spending in low intensity movement categories compared to high intensity categories. So what we found there was at about a one to 1.6 work to rest ratio, right? So when they're for every one second of, of work, they're about 1.6 seconds of rest. Um, and then for the, the game work to rest ratio was basically just like how much time are they spending on the ice compared to the time on the bench was one to 3.7. So every minute on the ice or many, every minute long shift was 3.7 minutes on the bench. So um, you know, quite a bit of valuable information that came out of it. And, and what we ended up doing is we, we published an article using the data that I collected for my thesis. And then we also published an article using 
similar data that was collected with the with the male counterpart for their their varsity data as well. So um, yeah, a really good learning experience. One of the one of the big things you know with the heart rate is it just a testament to the importance of of aerobic fitness in hockey and you know just being able to recover between shifts when you're when you're reaching that high of a heart rate is obviously a a very important piece to the game in order to be successful especially for the for the players that are logging the big minutes and are going to be on the ice in all situations of the game their ability to recover is instrumental in in being successful out there so All right. That was a lot. Um, <laughs> love it. I'm curious now, I mean, this can take you many different routes. Um, you know, who sprints more, you know, should we spend more time on the forward glide? Cause that's an important movement pattern, obviously for using it a ton. But I think where I want to go with this is, you know, how do we ra- effectively raise cardio or the, you know, the ability to get our heart rates up there or to a higher max? Um, am I thinking about that properly? And then the second side of that would be ability to recover well. So obviously you want to be available to go for that next shift and, and continue to assert yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, there's a lot of different things that can come into the equation here. So it's like, you know, if, um, if a player is a more efficient skater than another, right. Like they're, they're going to be able to, you know, they're not going to utilize as much energy within a shift and therefore they'll be able to be able to recover quicker. Um, you know, the other thing too, is like, I don't want it to, to make it seem like I'm arguing that like aerobic fitness is like the upper echelon and the most important quality for a hockey player, which I, I don't believe it is. I do believe it's important though. And I do believe that, you know, players need to have a level of aerobic fitness that's good enough and where it can kind of get lost in translation. There is that, you know, oh. So if we look at a VO2 score, so a VO2 max is is something that would be considered one of the gold standards of evaluating aerobic fitness. And, you know, they do it at the at the NHL combine and, you know, like a a good score for a hockey player would probably be in the range of 55 to 60 milliliters per kilogram per minute is what the unit is measured in. Anything higher than that? you know, it's probably going to mean that they're, they're spending maybe a little bit too much time training that quality and potentially taking away from other things, being it like strength and power and, and, and different like that. And I've seen, I've seen it happen with athletes where they've kind of go a little bit too far down that, that route. And, you know, they spend too much time running or, or cycling in the summer. And, and when they, when they come back and get into training camp again, to games, it's like they don't have that pop that they used to have, right. Where, you know, the, the biggest thing with hockey players is like you, you have to have such a well-rounded fitness to be a successful player, right? Like it's not just one thing that you need to be good at, right? You look at um, say like a hundred meter sprinter, right? There, there's lots of people that, you know, I don't know if it's as much anymore, but people would argue like, Oh, you know, hockey players should train like a sprinter where it's like, <laughs> sprinters don't really have a very good aerobic energy system. Right. So it's like, yeah, they can get out there and they can, you know, be as fast as a gazelle for 10 seconds, but they can't do that repeatedly. Right. And that's something that hockey players need to do. And that's where the aerobic energy system needs to come in. So, um, you know, throughout a season, the kind of thing is like with your high minute guys, like they will maintain a good enough level of aerobic fitness through practices and games for sure. No doubt about it. Just from the stimulus that they get through that, um, you know, especially if, 
if practices and, and everything are, are well designed and, and focused to condition players at the at the appropriate periods and give them rest at the appropriate times and that type of thing. But um, yeah, this like the biggest part. And then when you have guys that are maybe playing a little bit less, lower minute guys, maybe people that guys that are getting scratched every once in a while, then you're going to have to maybe focus on them a little bit more and give them a little bit of a dose every once in a while to kind of maintain those those levels of their aerobic fitness. Um, just to kind of keep them up there, make sure that they are ready to go and and able to recover when it is time for them to perform. All right. So say uh, we've got some youth parents or some high school coaches or college coaches out there listening in. What would you say to them to best develop that quality and finding the right element between strength training versus your cardio type training? Um, you know, I think one of the biggest things, and it's like, if we're, if we're talking about in season, um, you know, again, it's going to depend a little bit on your schedule. So if you're, a, if you're a team that if you're a youth team that only has a handful of practices a week and, and maybe a one game a week kind of thing like that. So you're not on the ice, you're not seeing the team every day, then um, it could be beneficial to throw a little bit of extra conditioning at players and, you know, with in season, I typically like to, to use more of like aerobic power based intervals. So that would be, you know, some, an interval that's say two to three minutes long. Um, you know, I really like to use the, the assault bikes or the echo bikes, the, the band, the arms move and everything like that. They're brutal. Most people know it. If, if you've tried them before, you know how painful it could be, but, um, you know, something that really allows you to get that heart rate up and, and keep it there. So, you know, going hard for two, three minutes and then taking a minute, minute and a half off and repeating that as an interval is something that's a, a very good stimulus for aerobic development. Um, if we're looking at teams that are are on the ice quite a bit more, um, you know, I just say like putting a bit more thought into how you structure your practices and how you condition your players on the ice. Um, I think that's one thing. It's like uh, with a lot of coaches, especially in the in the kind of development world, like know reaching out to fitness professionals that are around you and, and have the knowledge of the kind of sports science size and getting them to, to help you out and help you not necessarily design your practices and in, in sense of like the you know what you're doing out there for the players like drills and everything like that but just you know where your high day should be high and your low day should be low um you know and like kind of getting away from just the the, the old bag skate, right? Like just kind of bag skating the players and trying to just be a little bit more, um, hide the bag out. skates, coaches, hide those bag skates. Yeah. We're doing yeah. tracking today. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's the kind of thing too. It's like, if, if you, if you have a team or if you, if you have players that you want to get faster, you know, driving them into the ground with a, you know, half an hour long bag skate, that's, that's not how you're doing it. Right. And, and that's like a, another thing that, um, you know, I've, I've definitely tried to educate people on that, that have asked me about it and approached me about it, where, you know, if, if you're out and you're, you're working your players really hard, whatever it is that you're doing and you're expecting them to sprint and, and do anything in your type of bag skate scenario, whatever you're doing or whatever you think you're doing, it's most likely going to be an aerobic stimulus. Right. So if you want to actually work on speed on the ice, you need to make sure that the players are getting ample recovery between efforts. Right. And, you know, I think that's something it's just, you know, we, we always want to make good use of our time on the ice for good reason, because it's always expensive to rent it, but just a little bit more thought into, into how that's done. So like 
some days if, if you want to have more of a speed focus, then you need to know, okay, like these players need to go a hundred percent on every single rep, but they need to know at the same time that we're going to give them plenty of rest in between so that every rep after that has a very similar intensity. To it, right. So um, yeah, that I think, you know, trying to structure practices. So they're, they're focused on what you actually want to develop from an energy system standpoint is, is like a next step that a lot of coaches should take. Right. Cause I, I think that it would be very valuable just to put a little bit more thought into that side of it. Okay. I love this. Let's keep going down this track. So we're talking about individual sessions, but how do we think about these sessions within maybe the structure of a week? So a lot of these people maybe are less NHL, but more college I you know, idea based where it's practice during the week games on the weekend type, like how would you best properly structure that week? Um, and how does that maybe have its place a month and tied up the season? And obviously you're trying to peak towards the end when playoffs and all that are on the line. Yeah. And like, that's kind of the world that I came from before I, I came on with the Oilers here, right? I was at the university of Alberta and working with, with both the men's and women's hockey teams there. So, um, you know, my, like suggestion, you know, going into say, if you have a Friday, Saturday weekend, right. And you have practices on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right. You want to backload your week. So your Mondays and your Tuesdays should be your higher volume days and have some good intensity to them as well. So if it is a day where you want to really push them and you want to do, um, you know, potentially a little bit of conditioning skating at the end or your, your bag skate, then Monday is probably going to be the day. Um, right where you, you get them out there for maybe um, you know a full hour an hour and 15 and, and really push them hard on that day right um, and then you know Tuesday you know Tuesday Monday could probably be interchangeable depending on what you're focused on but you maybe one of those days you want to have more of your battle or your one-on-one two-on-two kind of small-sided game type of practice right and then moving on later in the week that's that's maybe when you want to keep it really short high intensity efforts with lots of rest and then that day before the game would just be like a very kind of relaxed intensity not on the ice for very long maybe working on more systems play and everything's very very low training stimulants right so that kind of thing is like you start high taper off going into that friday and then they're ready for the game high intensity on friday and saturday right and then again in that college setting oftentimes it's like if you had um scratches you know guys that aren't going to play on friday maybe if they're not playing both games and that's your opportunity as a strength conditioning coach to do extra conditioning off the ice to make sure they're getting whatever stimulus they might be missing from that game what about uh post game do you do anything post game are you i, I know like i remember seeing uh the carolina hurricanes I forget the gentleman's name he's basically rod brendamore after every home game's like go see bobby I forget, oh. Seems like a great guy. Every time I watch him, I'm killing myself on blanking his name. But like, he's go go Bill. see the trainer. Is it Billy? Bill, yeah. Billy, go see <laughs> Billy. So, what are your thoughts on that? Is, is Rod the Bod doing it right? I mean, obviously, he looks absolutely stunning for like age fifty. Uh, if I could ever look like that or an ounce like that, I'd be doing something right. Holy smokes! So uh, curious, is Billy doing it right down there? Yeah. And well, like post-game workouts there, I, from what I understand anyways, like there, there is a lot of teams that still do them and, and um, you know, we'll always have something set up post-game um, for, for any guys that, that do want to come in because you know there's, there's always going to be guys that just, they're always looking for 
per extra, right? And, you know, most teams are always going to have a handful of them. But, um, you know, one of the the biggest things and that's like a good argument for them in the in the NHL environment is that that time after the game is literally going to give you the most amount of recovery time prior to the next time they have to play, right? So it's like, okay, you can get this strength stimulus and this power stimulus and then they're going to have, you know, however much time to recover before their next one. Um, downsides to it is like, you know, you're, you're not getting a, an athlete in a, an, an ideal state to train at that point. Right. The, especially anybody that's played a lot of minutes, right. They're, they're coming off they're you know, they're, they're drained of energy, right. They, they probably used up all the, the calories that they put into their bodies during their pregame. And, um, you know, they're going to be dehydrated, uh, all that kind of stuff. Right. So most of the time it's, it's not ideal, but, um, you know, again, there's arguments on either side, right? And, um, you know, I, I don't mind it and, and some players prefer it, right? So it's like if the individual likes to do it and they, that's when they want to get their uh, their workout in and chances are they're not going to get it in their practice day, then yeah, let's do it post-game, right? So um, there's there's positive, it's positives and negatives. And then with that, how do you make sure you're not overtraining? when you're doing that kind of stuff or just even in general, just making sure we don't overtrain athletes. Cause I mean, that's a massive problem. Like I know a lot of goalies that say they were going for a start and they got to start the next day. They go through their hydration the first game, even though they're not playing. So then they don't sweat it all out. And then they go through it again the second day and you look at him, that guy looks bloated. And I know there's a such thing as overhydration. So I'm curious about overtraining and how this all relates. Uh, yeah, like it, it, like overtraining just comes down to striking a balance between training load and recovery, right? So, um, you know, in in certain scenarios, it, say in the NHL environment, when you have like a really heavy schedule, right? If you're playing like you know back to backs, and if you have like a you know a stretch of games where you're playing every second night, technically, then it's like probably not a good time to run high intensity practices and, and have a whole bunch of workouts in there. Right. So, um, you know, always trying to strike that balance between, you know, their, their training stimulus and their, their recovery. And, and in those times recovery becomes more important, right? Like you need to kind of stress that in, in a position like, like myself and, and try to help those guys out and, and just educate them on, on what they should be doing hydration wise, recovery methods, whatever that may be like foam rolling, Norma tech sleeves, you know, whatever it is that they have at their disposal. Um, you know, and then there's, there's ways of monitoring the athletes too. Right. So, um, you know, looking at something like the acute to chronic workload ratio. So that's something where, you know, you can, you, if you're if you're tracking it and you're measuring training loads and practices and workouts and everything like that you can you can look at it from an, an entire week right and so if you have a month of training and you know say for just giving you an arbitrary number um your training load average for the first three weeks is 1500 and then for the fourth week you jump up to 3000 then you know that's probably a recipe for injuries to happen right so the biggest thing is like you don't want to drastically spike your workload at any point because that is a time when you can run into overtraining type of issues right so you know trying to keep a load on the players that is ideal that you know is is something that gives them a good balance between their fitness and their fatigue right so in in this world that's what you're trying to manage right is you're you're trying to boost up fitness 
you know, reduce fatigue as much as you possibly can. But with every stimulus that you put on an athlete, it comes with a certain level of fatigue. So um, it's just kind of the science of, of trying to balance it, right? So, um, you know, and the, and the more tools you have at your disposal to to kind of monitor guys and, and see where they're at, like, um, you know, jump monitoring is something that I I did at the university uh, with my with my athletes there, and you know, uh, weekly we just I'd have them jump on a on a on a jump mat, which just give me a number off of it, right? And you know, every player had an average, and if they dipped significantly below their average, then it was like usually a conversation, being like, "Hey, like, you know, are you are you well rested? Like, you have like a lot of school stress at this time. Do we need to kind of back off a little bit this week and give you some more rest going into the games? That type of thing, right? And then. Here in the, uh, with the others, like we use force plates and, you know, it's, they're basically, we're doing jump monitoring them, but it's just giving us way more information off of, off of every jump and a, and a bunch more metrics in terms of, you know, how they're jumping and, and, uh, that type of thing. So a lot of different ways that you can, you can monitor fatigue, but it does just kind of come down to a balance of managing, managing training load and, and recovery. So you're doing jump mats and force plates uh so are those your two kpis are there anything else that you're managing and also uh just for my humor why aren't you doing vo2 maxes in the middle of the season (laughs) yeah so so vo2s um definitely not something you know potentially with an injured player if it's something that you wanted to check into but you know you're you're looking at a test that's it's pretty stressful um just in terms of the stimulus and just like psychologically it can be stressful for guys too. So um, probably not something that you want to, you know, throw at guys just randomly in the middle of the season. And, and it's another thing too. It's like, you know, usually um, if you are managing training loads very well and like, you know, you have a good uh, idea of like, okay, like how much certain guys are playing. If, if lower minute guys aren't playing as much and you're, you're giving them conditioning to kind of top them up, then, it's pretty much guaranteed that you're you're going to have them at a level where they need to be need to be in terms of their aerobic fitness, right? So if you if you have a good eye for it and and uh, a good read on everything that you're giving them, it's not something that you you will need to do. But um, yeah, and in terms of KPIs, like um, you know, I'm I'm a big supporter of on ice testing. Um, I, I think it's something that more teams need to place value on, um, you know, because like that's that's the thing we're always looking we're always looking how to get players faster. Right. And, you know, you, you talk to certain players, like I need to get faster in my first three steps and, and, you know, coaches, parents will say that kind of thing all the time, but very few athletes have actually been on the ice and, you know, time themselves and say a 30 meter sprint. Right. So, um, you know, we would do it at the, at the university and it was always really interesting because, you know, I, I often bring up this example where, you know, we had, you know, a couple, like a handful of guys that, um, very talented players, very important offensive players for the team, um, not always coming in and, and doing the best on the fitness testing, the off ice piece, right? Uh, you know, undersized guys, um, you know, probably could have been a little bit stronger to help them out. But you get them on the ice and they blew everybody else out of the water, right? So what's the most important? Right. Am, am I worried about how much this kid can can squat or bench press or, you know, broad jump? Or am I worried about how fast he can skate in a straight line or how quickly he can change direction on the ice? That's what's the most important. And we should be measuring that. Right. So um, 
I, I think that, you know, in, in terms of KPIs, that's that's what it comes down to is like, what can these guys do on the ice? That's the biggest KPI. Um, and again, you know, that's that's not to, um, you know, diminish the importance of off-ice testing and, and, you know, KPIs off the ice. I think your your lower body power measures are, are where you get the best bang for your buck. And, you know, again, that kind of depends on the types of tools that you have at your disposal. Uh, if you have force plates, they're, they're great. Um, you know, uh, a lot more people are are getting in them now because they are becoming more affordable. We have companies out there like Bald and Hawkins Dynamics that offer a, a pretty affordable option for them and they're they're very user-friendly. Um, but you know, even like in, in an environment that uh, where you don't have a lot of resources, just something like a broad jump, you know, all you need is measuring tape for that, right? And, and that's an excellent test. Uh, you know, you see them do it at the NFL Combine, they do it at the NHL Combine. It's, uh, it's a good test and it'll give you a lot of information about how an athlete can generate power with their lower body. But um, yeah, I, I think with, you know, off ice KPIs, some of the big ones would be um, lower body, lower body power measures. However, you can assess that in your situation. And then what would be on the flip side of that? Maybe what are some tests that aren't so good or aren't really worth the squeeze? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, some of the, some of the big tests that you you know, maybe, maybe aren't great are just the ones that aren't going to provide you with actionable information. Um, you know, and like, I, I've seen some situations where players have went into and, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times like with the training and the testing, some people have that idea of that philosophy that more is better, right? Let's just throw as many possible tests as we can at these athletes and, and see how they stack up, right? Where, you know, I have, I've seen athletes go into a testing situation where they've, they've had to do three different tests that were all essentially measuring the same thing. Right. So, um, you know, I, I recently wrote a, um, an article on that SCAF website about fitness testing and, and kind of what I talked about where you need to maximize the resources that you have available. You need to make sure that the tests you're using are reliable and valid, and then you need to make sure that they're repeatable. Uh, and, you know, repeatable being like, so say, um, you know, I had a group of bandom hockey players and I had the opportunity to take them and they had just enough money to do VO2 max testing with everybody, right? That test isn't going to be repeatable. So say if somebody gets injured and I want to retest their aerobic fitness, I'm probably not going to be able to go back and pay another $150, $200 for them to do a VO2 max, right? You want to, in that case, like with it, with the youth development, just run them through a beep test, right? There's nothing wrong with the good old beep test. Everybody, you know, most people hate it, athletes included, right? But um, it's still a valuable test. It's still, there's a ton of research done on it. It's valid, it's reliable, it's easy to do. It's the kind of thing is that you need to match testing and assessments to your environment, right? What what you have available to you, you need to kind of figure out what's going to give you the, the best bang for your buck. So I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a lot of like, bad tests out there. there there definitely could be right but it's like it might be bad for your situation or your scenario right figure out what your kpis are you know as the coach and then measure those don't put in a bunch of extra stuff just to kind of make it hard on the players i i i think that's something that um you know some some people do and they just need to get away from it uh, kpis for everyone that don't know uh key performance indicators i don't think i uh, define that very well just went straight into lingo. So apologies on that, but thank you, Joel. That, that was excellent. Um, continuing down with training, 
I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why we should specialize late in hockey. Why does everyone say it's a late specialization sport? Um, so that'll be the first piece. And then maybe the second piece or maybe where you start is when should players really start to specialize in hockey? Yeah. Um, you know, I think with, uh, with the specialization piece, it's, you know, it's a, you know, point of contention with, with a lot of people. Right. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's tough to say, like, I, I feel that, you know, players that are probably in the, in the area of, you know, 12, 13 years old in there where you're kind of like getting into those Kiwi Bantam ages, then it's like, you're probably going to want to specialize a little bit more. Right. Um, leading up to that, you know, the more of an athletic base that you have, the better it's going to serve you in the future. And whether that means that you're going to turn into a professional hockey player or a professional athlete in whatever sport, or if you're just, you know, a regular Joe, just kind of, you know, doing whatever it is that you have for your career, right? A better athletic base is going to set you up better, like later in life, right? And, and one of the biggest things is, you know, learning how to move through, you know, all different areas and fundamental movement skills is just going to help you, you know, less chance of, of getting injured, right? And, and just staying more active throughout life. And um, yeah, I think with uh, the unfortunate thing is that in, in Canada, um, you know, it, it's kind of turning into a little bit of an elitist sport um, where, you know, you have, a, you have a lot of academies and everything like that. And um, it's, it's tough to argue that the kids that are going to these academies are, they're, they're given a great opportunity, um, whether it be, you know, through the coaching that they get and, you know, the, the off ice training that they, they have at their disposable, at their disposal, everything. Right. But at the same time, it's like, how many, how many athletes are falling to falling through the cracks there, um, you know, that, that don't have the opportunity to do that. And, you know, I was looking at something recently where you, you look at a country like Norway and, you know, their youth, uh, sport participation is like 93% or something like that. And then, you know, youth, youth sport participation in Canada and the States is like 50, 60%. Right. So, you know, that, there's a country that, you know, they're, they're not spitting out NHL players, but that's more of a product of the, the hockey just not being one of the more popular sports. Right. The, you look at how they perform at the, at the Olympics and, you know, they're a small country that just, you know, they, they can't even, I, I don't, the, the gold medals are just flying into that country. Right. So they're doing yeah, they absolutely, they absolutely crush it at the Olympics. And then yeah. you look at just like, cause I'm a, I'm a nerd. I look these things up. Um, you would just look at like health rates into adulthood and they're just so much better than pretty much everyone else. Like it's, it's quite amazing how great Norway is athletically. And then also just like general health due to like the foundational beast that they get. Yeah. Yeah. And like, they're, you know, they're, they're doing things like they, they keep the costs and like low for sports. Uh, you know, they don't necessarily separate the more talented individuals from the less talented in individuals until they get into like high school ages. Um, and they just have like a better, like their adults are more active and everything. Right. So they, they seem to have like a, a, a better system going in that area. Right. And, and I, I think there's something to that. And, um, you know, the success that they have with some of those sports, I think it's a, it's a testament to that. And, uh, yeah, I, I just feel like the, the specialization, it, it's, it's something that, 
um, you know, it's, it's kind of going a little bit of the wrong way, uh, you know, where it's, it's not necessary for those real young athletes, but everybody seems to have the, the mindset that you're missing out or you're, you're doing your, your kid a potential disservice if they're not playing the sport year round. Um, but yeah, I, again, like, I think, you know, if we're looking at an age, probably in that, you know, those, those peewee bantam years where, you know, you could probably start to specialize a little bit more, but, um, you know, I, I still feel like having a, a more well-rounded kind of athletic background is, is the best possible thing for, for a player. And then with that, are there certain issues that come with specializing early? Are you seeing hip issues? Are you seeing just like they've never used this muscle and now it's holding them back from doing X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's another big thing, right. Is the the potential for injuries and um, you know, a big thing with, with hockey players is FAI. So uh, femoral acetabular impingement is, is something that a lot of players are, are dealing with, um, you know, fairly early in, in their lives as a hockey player. And um, I can't remember, there was a research study that came out, um, you know, a few years back now where they, they did an MRI on, a pretty good chunk of kids that are all in kind of like the, you know, 18 to 20 years old range that had played like, uh, you know, a hockey for a good portion of their lives. And, and it was like over 90% of the players had this FAI. Um, and, you know, it, it's not, not all of them were presenting symptoms of it, but there was, and basically what this is, is just an abnormal bony overgrowth, whether it's on the head of the femur or the acetabulum of the pelvis, and it can run into impingement issues. So, um, you know, the hip problems are, are something that, you know, is, is comes along with, with playing hockey. And, but like, I think a lot of it has to do with, with too many players specializing early and, and not giving themselves more of like a well-rounded athletic base and, and, you know, playing other sports that they're not stuck in the same movement patterns over and over and over again. Awesome. Awesome stuff here. Well, uh, I've got two last issues that I think we need to cover here. Uh, number one, nutrition. Um, I mean, Anthony Donskoff, I feel like he, he's the gold standard here. So maybe you can outdo him since he's a good buddy of yours. Uh, nutrition, what, what should we know about, or what is maybe, uh, nutrition for dummies for, for us mortal folks that are just trying to get by and move in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one of the biggest things with nutrition is that everybody, um, everybody should follow like a habit based nutrition model. And, and what I mean by that is just, you know, try to practice good habits with your food intake, you know, 90% of the time. Right. And, and you know, the, and I, I can't remember if I, I'm pretty sure Anthony's done the same thing, but I've, I've done a, uh, a certification through precision nutrition. And it's one that's like a pretty well-recognized um, nutrition company that's based out of Toronto. And um, they have three levels of, of athletes or clients that you could potentially work with. And basically what they say is that the overwhelming majority, 90% plus of people are going to be level one. And, and that just is based around, you know, like, habits, good habits, just trying to eat right. Most of the time, not weighing your food and counting your macros and everything like that. Right. So like, and then the level two and three, like those are level two would be an athlete that needs to compete in a, in a weight category sports so something like MMA wrestling, um, you know, things like that, where they need to kind of, you know, fluctuate their rate, their weight based on whatever category that they're in. And then a level three would be 
you know, like a bodybuilder or somebody going into a figure competition or like a movie star that's getting paid to pack on 30 plus pounds of muscle or something like that. Right. So there's very few people that need to fall into those categories. And, you know, one of the biggest reasons is, is that, you know, treating your nutrition like that, it's like, um, it's not manageable. Right. And it's not really realistic to do that all the time. Um, you know, like what I always kind of tell athletes that I've done nutrition talks for is trying to follow an 80, 20 rule. And, and what I mean by that is just, you know, 80% of the time you're, you're eating clean, you're eating the right stuff. You know, you're, you're very conscious of what you're putting into your body. And then 20% of the time you let yourself cheat a little bit, right? Like we're all human. Like I always use the the example of Dairy Queen, right? Like, you know, I like to go to Dairy Queen every once in a while and get myself a blizzard and, you know, my whole family goes, but I'm not doing that three, four times a week, right? So uh, it's just kind of picking your spots and and just making sure that you're you're eating well most of the time, right? As, as hockey players, right? You know, trying to find um, good, clean carbohydrates that you like and and they agree with you when you eat them right so you know what if that's pasta for you great if it's rice great if it's sweet potato great you know try to find the one that you prefer and, and makes you feel the best and gives you good energy right i think that's another thing where just being conscious of of what you're putting into your body and, and how it makes you feel so if if it's you know somebody out there that finds that they're they're having some issues or they're you know they're bloated a lot of the time and they don't feel great just you know Try to track what you eat for a few days and and write notes and and just kind of like you know try to find and and tie in like what makes you feel good what makes you feel not so good and, and just be conscious of it uh, if i remember correctly uh connor mcdavid is known for having a sweet tooth uh from like candy so thinking like uh, like gummy bears uh What's the so a lot of those hard candies? Uh, if I remember correctly, am I wrong on that? I I can't remember him ever ever having candies. He's a pretty uh, he he keeps it pretty tight. So with his nutrition, so I I, I don't see the guy eating candy too often. Yeah, I, I forget it. Someone was they were doing like a you know one of those roasting your, your fellow teammates, and it came up from a few of them like yeah you know if, if it's out it's probably gone. You got to protect your candy around here. <laughs> uh, but um i'm curious on this last one and i think uh, it's gonna be really really cool for people is, is talking about the paper or the article whatever you would call it uh, that you put out on stair conditioning for hockey players because it's it's so fascinating how stair training can be powerful for hockey players um, ground contact time being a major piece of that uh, and I will let you take it from there because there's so much goodness in this and I'd, I'd rather you tell it than me screwed up. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's something that, you know, stairs are, are something that I, I really like to have in my own kind of personal fitness routine. And it's something that I've used extensively with, with players that I've, I've trained in the past. So, um, yeah, that's like the one new, like, so a very unique thing about hockey is that the, the ground contact time pattern when you're sprinting is the exact opposite of what it is when you run. So when you run, so say if you're, you know, you're watching somebody in a hundred meter sprint, uh, when they start off, when they're accelerating out of blocks, their ground contact times are long, right? So as they start to pick up speeds and they first get out, they have long ground contact times. And as they reach top speed, there's, they have a lower ground contact. And all we mean by that is just like the amount of time that their foot is on the ground to generate force. So when they reach top speed, there's very, very small ground contact times, longer when they're accelerating. 
with a hockey player or a skater, it's it's the exact opposite. So when they're accelerating, their ground contact times are shorter. And then as they reach that kind of gliding full speed, that's when their ground contact times get longer. So they go from short to long or sprinters go from long to short. And it's like something that you can mirror on the stairs. So, um, you know, it's something where, you know, say if you're taking one stair at a time, you know, your ground, con- times, ground contact times are a bit shorter. You transition to two stairs at a time, you're getting a little bit longer, three stairs at a time, even longer, right? And with each one of those transitions, you're you're spending more time on the ground, but at the same time, you're generating more force and more power, very similar to how it is when, when you are skating. So, um, you know, sprint work on the stairs, especially for, you know, any any players or any athletes out there that don't have a lot of access to the ice, uh, especially in the off season, it, it's, it's an excellent thing that you can use for your conditioning and your, and your speed work. And, um, you know, it's also like a, a really good combination of, you know, energy system work and muscular endurance work where, you know, you're kind of just doing repeatedly, repeatedly doing a step up on the stairs. Right. And as you descend stairs, there's really good eccentric muscle work. So, um, it, it's just a great bang for your buck exercise. A lot of, a lot of great, uh, great things that you can get out of it. And here in Edmonton anyways, like we got a lot of really nice, uh, sets of stairs that kind of feed down into the river Valley and, and, you know, get some nice views and, and get outside and get the sun, cheer it off if you want. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's a great way to exercise. And what, what about like the, the range of motion as well? Yeah. And, and that, that is another thing. So it's like when, if, if any of your listeners are interested in reading that article, you'll see some photos that I put on there and, and how, um, you know, like a side view of an athlete running on the stairs from one stair at a time, they're more upright. Um, you know, the knee drive isn't quite as high, very similar to what you would look like when you're first starting a sprint from a dead stop on the ice. And then as they reach that second and third stair, it's more of an aggressive torso lean, a higher knee drive, again, exactly the same as what you're going to see when you reach more of a maximal speed uh, when you're sprinting on the ice. So range of motion throughout the hip, knee, uh, ankle is very similar to what you're going to see in skating. Yeah, and then, and then the last component would just be uh, well, the lateral, if you want to go a little bit side to side rather than straight up. Uh, yeah. I'm guessing that's also another piece to this is, is adding that in there just to kind of get hockey-ish. Yeah, definitely, because like that, you know, that kind of, the unique thing about skating is that it's a combination of like a, you know, a frontal and sagittal plane type of movement where again, that's very hard to mimic with, uh, you know, you're not going to mimic that on a bike, not necessarily, you know, just out for a run or anything like that. But if you're on the stairs, you can, you can add that piece in where you do more of a little bit of a lateral bound up the stairs where it gives you a very similar planes of motion that you would see in skating. So, um, yeah, it's in, in terms of like the, the similarities that you can draw from skating, I, I, I can't think of too many other things that, that would do the same, right. You know, some people can use slide boards in the off season, which also, uh, have some good benefits to them as well. Um, but yeah, just the, the stairs are, are going to give you a little bit less of an impact factor than what you would spend a slide board. And, um, yeah, again, just, yeah, a lot of, a lot of good things that you can get out of. All right. So I think we need to brand Joel as the stair man. Uh, <laughs> gotta have good branding. I'm not here to be your hype guy. <laughs> Joel, the stair man, Jackson. Let's go. <laughs> I like it. Got a good ring to it. <laughs> yeah. No, obviously it's a super important thing. And uh, I think Rocky, the movie is completely on board with us here. 
There you go. <laughs> suddenly we're gonna watch every single team in Pittsburgh suddenly running hills and, and running all the <laughs> stairs. Uh no no incline for you guys. Running. Uh, too good. Well, Joel, uh, anything that we missed or anything else you want to touch on here? This has been an awesome, awesome episode. Super excited to share this with everyone. And I'll I'll make sure to put Joel in parentheses, the stairman Jackson on, on the show notes. <laughs> uh yeah no greg there's not, not nothing else that i can think of but uh but yeah i appreciate you having me on any uh young strength conditioning coaches out there uh they want to reach out to you what's the best way to get a hold of you i uh, yeah I'm, I'm on social media uh twitter and instagram my my twitter handle is uh joel jackson sc and then my uh instagram is jackson underscore joel i think i think i got that right but uh uh and then if if anybody um ever wants to email me as well it's just jjackson at edmontonoilers.com um yeah yeah that's uh i'm always happy to um you know, converse with people and, and interact. So uh, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Awesome. And then uh, for all those people that love to travel in the off seasons, I have to say uh, you should definitely add the Joel Jackson community weight room. Uh, if you're ever in the area of snow Lake onto your itinerary. So Joel, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. This was fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Greg. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch a Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.